Hello, and welcome to episode 50 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. 50 episodes almost makes me think there should be a celebration of some kind. I don't know. Oh, and I'm Ted Newell. If you don't already know me, I am Ted Newell, your host. And it's a real pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, 50 episodes. I think we started this podcast just a little over a year ago, maybe a year and a month and a half. And it's hard to believe there's this much to talk about, but there is, and there's a lot more. But today's episode is super interesting. The title of this episode is The Four Forces Shaping Healthcare with Mark Dixon. Mark is a very interesting guy. How did I meet him? Well, sometimes podcast guests lead to other podcast guests. You may remember my interview with Will Gray. Will is the Vice President of Marketing and Commercial Operations for Corporate Accounts at Boston Scientific. Now, Will mentioned the positive influence Mark Dixon had on the Boston Scientific approach to corporate accounts. Will suggested Mark would be a very informative podcast guest, so I tracked him down, and Will was not wrong. Mark has had an exemplary career as a healthcare executive. Before retiring, and I use the word retiring facetiously as you'll learn in a few minutes, he led one of the largest healthcare organizations in the world. Now he consults for both the provider side of healthcare and the vendor side. You will soon learn that he works with executives of some of the largest companies in the world. Today, we will benefit from Mark's wisdom and get a framework for the future of healthcare around which MedTech can build strategies for a profitable win-win. This is particularly important for small to medium-sized MedTech companies that traditionally don't view the healthcare ecosystem as strategically as the large medtech companies. This is also very important for non-U.S. companies trying to better understand the U.S. healthcare market. In the show notes, I will have links to some of the resources that Mark and I talk about. If you want to get in touch with Mark, send me an email and I will send you his contact information. He does not have or need a website. He does have a LinkedIn profile, so that will also be in the show notes. But if you want to get his email, send me an email at ted at medicaldevicesuccess.com. So that's T-E-D at medicaldevicesuccess.com. Also, if you want to, me to send you one or two slides that summarize the points that are made in this podcast, send me an email. Last week, after the podcast, where I invited people to request an email. A lot of you did. And I had a number of people request um, emails with examples of embedded videos and also several requests for the slides that we used during the podcast. So that was a lot of fun to interact with a number of you, and I'm glad I was able to help. Now, join me in a very interesting conversation about the forces shaping healthcare with Mark Dixon. Dixon, it is really great to have you on the Medical Device Success Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to be with me today and with the audience. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's just dive right into some stuff. Um, you know, and I'm just going to tell the listeners that Mark Dixon's a very interesting person. He has a terrific experience, which we're going to explore in a second, but you're not going to find him on a website. If somebody needs to find him, they're going to have to ha have the right contacts, I guess, to find him. Um, but the people that do utilize his experience and his knowledge and his expertise are some of the biggest healthcare providers uh, in the country and in the world. And then also the, the vendors, the biggest vendors in the world. And so his expertise is, is highly regarded. So Mark, just 
give a little description of your background and then what you do now. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, um, hopefully, I'm not that hard to find. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I uh, um, actually started my career as a pharmacist in my first career, and then I moved into health uh, healthcare administration. So I, I had a long career, 30 plus years at three different health systems at uh, Abbott Northwestern Hospital and Alina Health System in Minneapolis, where I was CEO uh, of Abbott Northwestern Hospital. Um, did that for many years and was part of that system. I was, I was in the room when the word Alina was invented, uh, which is kind of a fun little thing. I then went down to a community health network and, and ran a health system called Community Health Network, the, all the Indianapolis markets there. Uh, again, a whole different experience than uh, being at a single hospital. Now I'm overseeing a health system and all the hospitals in that health system. And then I finished up my career, my first career, if you will, in, in leadership, uh, working at Fairview Health Services, now called M Health Fairview in Minneapolis. At Fairview, I was uh, the regional president and chief operating officer overseeing uh, the entire system. So a variety of different experiences. Uh, for lots of reasons, I left Fairview uh, uh, back uh, almost a decade ago now, and I tried to retire, uh, Ted. I tried to kind of slow it down a little bit and do some different things in life, but friends found me. Friends found me and pulled me back into the business. So fast forward to today. Today, I spent about a third of my time with the C-suite of America's largest health systems. I'm working with them on strategy activities like population health, like consumerism, kind of thinking about where the world needs to be in three to five years and how do we get there? So that's, I, I participate and I probably talked to 25 different uh, COOs, regional presidents, CEOs, just in the last two weeks, just kind of catching up with them on where things are at. And through that, I also mentor a lot of mid-careerists inside these health systems, maybe hospital presidents getting ready to take that next move to a system role. So that's about a third of my consulting practice, which is just thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, the second part's equally enjoyable, the other two thirds. As you noted in your intro, I work with uh, suppliers, vendors, whatever you wanna call yourself, health industry members. And they range the gamut from medical device to pharma, to capital equipment, to services, to software, wherever it may be. Many of the clients I've had, I'm sure are folks that you've heard of before, Pfizer, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Cerner, uh, uh, many, many different kinds of organizations. And there, uh, I'm actually helping them really understand how are your customers changing and what do you need to do to be relevant for them? So uh, too many times I saw suppliers just trying to sell us more stuff. How can we sell you the next MRI? How can we sell you the next XYZ to your health system? Uh, the more suppliers should actually understand our problems and solve problems we care about on the provider side, they're more relevant. And so in that consulting practice, I spend time with their senior teams, with their national accounts teams, uh, helping them gain a deeper and broader picture of uh, what's happening with their customers. So it's a lot of fun. I'm very privileged to have both lots of friends on the provider side of, uh, of the world in healthcare and lots of friends on the supplier side of healthcare to help us all kind of navigate to um, to, to a future. And, and I guess uh, you didn't ask this, but I'll say, why am I still working? Why didn't I just hang it up? We've had a really uh, awesome career. Well, I'm just terribly concerned about the affordability of healthcare and the quality of healthcare for my kids, for my grandkids. So uh, trying to influence that from a different angle at a, at a kind of an industry level standpoint. Okay. Great introduction. And I do want to go back to uh, your career before you tried to retire and failed at that. That's, one of the, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great failure, uh, by the way. But one of the things in our uh, preparatory call, when we were talking about your career, one of the things that really stood out to me was how the, the leadership roles changed as you went through your career from being in charge of a hospital and then later on, uh, you know, to be in, in charge of a whole region. Could, could you talk just a little bit about that and, and how that reflects on the change in healthcare overall? Yeah, and maybe if I could relate the question to suppliers as well, because I see okay. this all, all the time. Um, you know, I used to run a hospital. Uh, I mentioned to you that uh, we kidded, but at times we felt our job was to put heads in beds. 
uh, to fill up the towers. And if the parking garage was full, I knew it was going to be a good day for our health system because a lot of patients were coming through the door. We were largely paid on a fee-for-service basis. And I was pretty focused on my hospital. A lot of suppliers are focused on the hospital as the center of the universe. And they're looking, how can we sell this hospital more stuff or that hospital more stuff? Well, as I moved into these next level roles, Ted, where now I'm in charge of five hospitals or 14 hospitals, and maybe even a whole health system, suddenly I'm beginning to think much more at an enterprise standpoint and not at a single hospital standpoint. So I'm trying to figure out how many open heart surgery programs should we have in this health system? Who has the best quality? Who has the best uh, patient experience scores? Uh, who's got the best cost profile? And how do we help those that perform better at an enterprise level uh, do better inside of our, our health system? The other key component, which is probably quite obvious, but as you move up the ladder, your, your, your job is so much more about developing the talent underneath you to execute against a vision. So number one, getting clearer on the vision, what the, what the direction for the enterprise needs to be, not the direction for the hospital, but at the enterprise level. And then secondly, what kind of talent is needed to, to help move that forward? So that was kind of the first two thirds of that, that career. And I think we touched on my experiences towards the end where we began to pivot from being hospitals to hospital systems to being healthcare systems, to focusing on population health and consumerism and affordability of healthcare. And suddenly you're aiming towards a different vision than we might have been thinking about when we're just trying to fill hospitals, if you will. So much more focus on ambulatory, much more focus on physician practice development and acquiring the, uh, strategically physician practices. So, uh, and there you're really trying to say, how do we create a better product that's more affordable for patients that they actually want to be part of and, and not have to be part of because they're in a narrow network. So you're thinking differently about uh, maybe taking on uh, contracts that have uh, dollars of care per member per year is how we're paid instead of dollars per procedure is how we're paid. So different aims for what we're trying to accomplish there. And I think you'll find, Ted, when you go around the country, different health systems, and I use that word health systems or integrated delivery networks, IDNs, they're in different places. Some are still largely in the fee-for-service space where they're uh, just trying to fill the towers and uh, turn the crank and generate more revenue. And many of them, many of the folks I work with around the country have turned that corner and put the pedal down hard to say the future isn't that. The future is really making healthcare better and more affordable and having a right-sized delivery system to deliver that care, both on an inpatient capacity basis as well as a, a ambulatory basis. Okay, and, and you had said a, a few minutes ago when we were getting set up for this that you sort of changed from early in your career, as you said, as you started this description out, you said you were putting heads in beds, and then at the end of your career, you're trying to keep the heads out of the beds. Yeah, good. good. Here's an example. So when I was uh, leading at Fairview, uh, we had a major population health initiative, went all in with all payers. Uh, we really believed it is in the strategy for the future. Uh, and this, we were early adopters. Uh, Ted, we were like way ahead of the curve. This is before the Affordable Care Act was even passed. Wow. Um, and so we were we we just saw a future and developed some partnerships with Medicare and with uh, some of the major payers. And uh, I remember one of my hospital presidents came to me and said, uh, "You guys are killing me." And I says, "Why? What's wrong?" And he says, "Well, you've got these new initiatives around heart failure to reduce the readmission rates for heart failure to keep patients out of the hospital." You've cut that in half, oh, more than in half, like 60% reduction in readmissions. So my admissions are down at my hospital, and it's killing my bottom line because I need more revenue coming through the front door in order to maintain my, my bottom line. And he asked me, and now what kind of relief are you going to give me on our budget targets for this upcoming year? And I said, you're a big boy. You're a big leader. You're going to have to just figure it out. Your budget target's the same as it was. And so... <laughs> That's the reality of where the, the old world's meeting the new world, and sometimes the finances get mixed up in the middle of that, and that's part of some of that hesitation that you'll find with some leaders to do that. You're, you're clearly, you know, we're trying to reduce readmissions. If, if your mom had heart failure, if your mother had heart failure, 
and was going in and out of the hospital every month or every two months, wouldn't it be great if we could keep her home for three or four months instead of having to disrupt her life, disrupt her family's life to come into the hospital? That wasn't our aim uh, a decade ago for most health systems. Today, more and more so it is. Okay. Well, great. Uh, so I think that's um, really puts an interesting perspective on the delivery and the provider side of healthcare. And, and one of the things I haven't done in this podcast is talk to the provider side uh, much at all. It's either been subject matter experts trying to solve the problems for vendors or and or the vendors to understand their experiences, what they're doing to succeed. And I do need to spend more time on the provider side because we really need to understand that. Um, so let's move on to the one of the reasons we're talking today. And that is that when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, you had talked about several forces that are shaping healthcare. And we talked about three at the time, and now we're talking maybe there's four, four forces shaping healthcare. Tell me about those forces. Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll quick jump in and set a context for the, the four forces and talk a little bit about COVID 19. I mean, it's relevant. We've all kind of experienced it. Um, and it's impacted those forces in a big way. Um, when you think about from a provider perspective, COVID-19, uh, a year ago, March, uh, we were in the middle of the surge. We were closing down everything. We were hemorrhaging dollars. We didn't have enough PPE. Uh, we were in emergency preparedness mode across the country. Every health system was saying, what can we do to, to take care of the challenges that are in front of us? Let's be sure our hospitals don't fill up. So we have capacity to serve our community. Then we began to kind of reopen America's health systems and trying to slowly bring things back. Um, patients were scared to come in. So we saw a big volume drop-offs uh, through that whole, whole uh, stand time frame. CARES Act was in place and we're starting to uh, do some sort of capital and economic recovery inside these health systems. Uh, but it was a tough run for the majority of last year. And you remember we'd surge and then we'd pull off and, so we were kind of in between surge and recovery for much of last year. Um, and now we're kind of moving into that third phase, which I would call reimagining healthcare, uh, reimagining, taking the learnings of what we had through all of that uh, in terms of what, what should it look like now. Telehealth just accelerated you know, thousands of percent last year. More things were done at the home, more remote monitoring was done at the home. Uh, it kind of transformed the types of things that we're involved in. Uh, so many executives I spoke with during that time frame said, uh, number one, uh, they've never seen themselves or their teams work harder than they did during uh, March through December of last year and even into today. Uh, second thing is they, they saw you know, five to seven years worth of innovation happen in three to five months. So a rapid increase in innovation. And we'll talk about some of those in these forces. And the third thing that is they've never been prouder of their team. Uh, they're, it's amazing the, the, what they accomplished. So there's a pride in that uh, we almost did the impossible last year to get it through. But now we're kind of on the other end of it. Uh, we've, we've lost a lot of money. Uh, last year, most of the average hospitals uh, had a negative minus 0.7% or 0.7% um, operating margin compared to a 3 or 4% usual margin from 2019. So we've got some balance, and that's with CARES Act support. There have been about 3% loss without CARES Act support. Wow. So we're in a, a period of some balance sheet restoration as we move forward. At the same time, we're looking at how do we reinvent ourselves? How do we go more virtual? How do we reduce our system space needs? People can work at home. Every, everybody doesn't have to be in an office tower. So lots of reimaginings happening with all that space. And um, I would say innovation and transformation is, is key. The other element, we may touch on this later, but I don't want to forget it, that is just top of mind. Uh, all Every single conversation I've had in the last two weeks with these leaders across the country, big all big health systems, systems like Northwell and Intermountain Healthcare and uh, Baycare and other big systems, New York Presbyterian, um, all of them said labor force issues, labor force resilience uh, is absolutely uh, the number one, two, or three issue they're dealing with. Uh, people can do heroic things for short periods of time, 
but they got worn out, they're retiring, they're moving on to different roles that have less stress associated with them. So getting appropriate numbers of workforce is just a, a top issue for these health systems as we move to the forward, so to the future. So that's kind of the, the backdrop that I would leave you with, Ted, in terms of uh, um, uh, kind of bringing us today. today. And it really helps, up, helps to set up the, the, these four forces that, that we uh, talked about earlier. Um, and, and really, they're, they're not that complex. Let me, let me just jump in and second. Oh, yeah. How, how, um, how severely injured were some hospital systems? Because early on, I, I read about you know, the, the damage that was being done because they're losing all these elective procedures and you know, they were really focusing on you know, helping people that had COVID. How much damage was done? Yeah, I, I would say uh, I'm generalizing here without a lot of just specific numerical data in front of me. Um, but, uh, you know, if, uh, on the average, it was about a four point spread in operating margin, okay. 3% down to minus 1%. Just think about it from that term. Uh, but then if you're going to uh, uh, break down that 1% into some subsectors, smaller health systems had a lot more damage. If you okay. didn't have a lot of scale or if you didn't have as robust of a balance sheet, uh, you had a much bigger impact. You might have had a three or five or seven percent net operating loss last year compared to a larger health system that might have a have had a you know a half a percent or a one percent operating loss. So size mattered in terms of your ability to endure this. Um, the other thing I, I would say is that it varied by um, kind of the lines of business that you were in. Uh, those health systems that had built up a health plan and actually were playing in what we talked about earlier, the population health space, they did much better. Mm. Uh, two health systems I can think of in particular, uh, they said the losses that they incurred on their uh, fee-for-service side of their business of elective surgeries and doctor visits and cath lab visits and all of that, uh, they were more than made up for for the gains that they had on their health plan side of the business from decreased utilization. So from a pure business perspective, they were diversified. They had lines of business that didn't compete, but actually were complementary to each other. So groups like Oxner or Intermountain Healthcare or others that are playing in that population health space actually did better uh, than those that were more uh, just in the fee-for-service medicine space. Um, the other comment I would make, just again, big picture, on this recovery theme that we're talking about here. You know, we lost uh, virtually all of our uh, elective physician visits, uh, virtually all of our elective surgeries, uh, virtually all of our emergency department visits, except for just the most emergent of the emergent. Um, elective cases have come back. They're probably at 90 to 95, some at 100% of pre-COVID volumes across most health systems I work with. Uh, inpatient activity is probably in the 95%. So hasn't quite come back. Uh, physician office visits are in that 80 to 90, depends on subspecialty. But the one area that's consistently, I say the two areas consistently low is emergency department visits for adults and emergency department visits for pediatrics. Mm -hmm. Those areas haven't come back to, I've rarely seen it above 70% of pre-COVID levels. Patients, families, parents are scared to bring themselves, their kids into the emergency department for fear of COVID, they might've lost their insurance. There's any number of factors that can, can drive that. And that's a pretty big deal for health systems when your ED volumes drop off by that much. So we'll see what happens to them over time. Some of it's been you know, uh, morphed into virtual visits instead of in-person visits. Um, again, in yesterday's world, a, a fee for volume, um, it's a big deal to lose all that volume uh, in tomorrow's world of fee for value, where you're you know kind of being paid to keep patients healthy, and we all know that maybe 30 to 50 percent of all emergency department visits aren't emergent; they should be handled in an urgent care center or a doctor's office. It's a good thing. So it kind of depends on where you play and how that hits your health system as to how severely you were hit. Yeah, my wife is a retired emergency room physician, and so we have a number of friends that are still. Well, you're hearing all about this then. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, she's, you know, she'll talk to some of her friends and they'll say that their visits are down, as you just mentioned, and that they're cutting back staff. It's a little bit ironic because 
it, you know, it's the emergency room that people flowed through when they had COVID. And these people like really uh, bent over backwards to try to help triage them into the hospital. And now there's cutbacks in emergency rooms because of the, the volume is, is low yeah. now that, you know, we're getting control over COVID. So interesting. Well, and the, the other interesting uh, angle on that uh, is that in 2020, we had uh, 997 million, nearly 1 billion fewer diagnostic visits to doctors in the United States alone. 30% drop in visits to doctors in 2020 from the previous year. It's across all subspecialties. So, you know, you and I both know cancer didn't take a holiday. Uh, yeah. Cardiac disease didn't take a holiday. It's still present. So what these smaller number of visits and smaller number of staff to care for those visits are seeing is patients that are on the average sicker than the average patients that came in a year ago. So the acuity is up. And uh, I've talked to cardiologists, I've talked to oncologists that are seeing much more advanced disease present for the first time, as opposed to getting an ounce of prevention further early, earlier in the, the disease progression, as we saw in 2018, 2019. So uh, we're, we're not out of this yet. Uh, it's going to take some time for us to kind of get back to a new equilibrium, uh, but it's certainly present at this point. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me divert you in that regard. Now let's move on to the, the 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 forces that are shaping healthcare. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about each of them just to tee it up, though. Uh, one's consumerism. The second one we'll talk about is population health or volume to value. The third is mergers, consolidations, new competitors, disruptors, uh, kind of what's happening in that space. And the last is this relentless focus to reduce total cost of care kind of the new normal, the focus on affordability. And through all four of these, the whole concept of the triple aim is heavily embedded. And for those of you that haven't heard about that or studied that, it was coined by Dr. Don Berwick, former CMS administrator, but he's best known for his work with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the founder of the IHI. And he, he, he hypothesized uh, that if you focus on providing better health, better patient experience of care, if you do those both well, you're going to end up with lower total cost of care. You can reduce the, the variation in care that patients exist across care settings and end up with better care, better experience, and lower costs. Uh, I was an early disciple of Dr. Burwicks. I studied under him in the 90s, actually, believe it or not. I had wonderful dark brown hair at that point when I was uh, back early <laughs> in my career. And I became a believer and a convert and, and put those kinds of concepts in place in my health systems. Well, it's heavily embedded in the Affordable Care Act. It's heavily embedded. 100% of your health systems nationally have that as a core tenant of their strategic plan. And, and it's even morphed into something now called the quadruple aim. So cost, quality, patient experience, and caregiver experience or caregiver resilience. Lots of burnout and, and caregivers. If they can't feel good in their jobs, it's going to be hard for them to hit the, the, the triple aim them, themselves. So uh, that kind of weaves its way through all four of these trends. Consumerism is the first one. Maybe we'll just jump in on that if, uh, sure. unless you have any follow-up questions. Uh, Consumerism is happening in almost every part of our life, but not in healthcare. If you think about uh, how you inter interact with commerce and the way you buy things, whether it's Amazon or, or, or eBay or um, Venmo, Zillow, whatever it may be, uh, there's lots of things that are easy to use, better consumer experience, less friction. Uh, you can do it 24-7. Uh, how many of you listening in today feel that's the way your health system operates? Probably very few. Uh, we're kind of on the opposite side of that. And I think consumerism, excuse me, health systems are now waking up to the notion of the powerfulness of consumerism and looking at what can they do to uh, make their health systems better. Uh, what's driving that? Number one, consumers are, are feeling a lot more financial responsibility for what they're um, spending in healthcare, higher deductibles, higher copays, uh, and, and, and so forth and so on. There's lots more alternatives. In the past, it was just go to your doctor's office, uh, and now you've got urgent care centers, you've got virtual health things, teledoc, whatever it might be. Um, there's greater transparency. You can shop for healthcare today much better than you could, say, a decade ago. There's websites out there. And even review sites like Yelp that might review 
Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones and what kind of doctor are they? Right. And, and frankly, I'll just say there's kind of a general weakening of the physician recommendation. It used to be uh, in my era, I grew up with Marcus Welby. Whatever Marcus Welby told me to do, we did. And today, you know, consumers shop uh, their disease online. They figure out the three alternatives that uh, they think they have. Here's the pathways that I need to take for treatment. And they walk into the doctor's office wanting to walk through the field of daisies uh, with their new allergy medicines or whatever it may be. And the doctors have to spend a good deal of the time trying to help them understand it differently and not just agree with them. They might be right, but they might not be right. So um, we see more and more consumers looking at healthcare as something that they want to have a bigger choice. They want to choose their sites of care. They want to know how much this will cost or that will cost. So health systems are waking up to that and embedding that into their strategic plans as to how do we make our health systems much more consumer friendly? How do we have a digital platform that really meets patients and family members where they're at, that helps patients manage their own health? Um, how do we uh, make it easier for patients to get price estimates on what something might cost from an out-of-packet standpoint? How does our quality compare to the health system down the road? All of these things are things we didn't do five to 10 years ago. And I would venture to guess that uh, nearly 80% of health systems I work with have a pretty strong platform on consumerism inside the strategic plan. So how do we create stickiness with consumers, make them want to come to us instead of have to come to us? And they've really awakened to that, that um, whole notion of customer loyalty and what that value is. Uh, all the big retail companies, all the big hotel companies, the casinos, they all know what that is. They know exactly how to cater to my demographic or your demographic or any of those that are on the call with us today. Uh, health systems have kind of treated every patient the same. So they really began to invest in that heavily and are coming forth with uh, new titles and new talent. A lot of them from outside of industry to help them really sort out that consumerism thing. So that's a kind of a thumbnail sketch of, uh, of consumerism. Yeah, um, when, I, when I look at my own experience with that, I think about something as simple as the patient portals that now exist. And um, I'm in Philadelphia, so it's a big University of Pennsylvania town and also Jefferson Hospital, so they compete against each other. But it's really nice when you can go into a portal as a patient and um, – if you're seeing several doctors from the University of Pennsylvania system, they can all see the same stuff. Right. And, you know, you're not, you don't always have to fill out all the same forms that you used to have to fill out, but they can sort of look and see, and then you can communicate with them and so on. Um, I do like that. Yeah. You can email your doctor. You can yeah. ask a question. You don't have to wait for a return phone call. Um, one of my early consumerism experiments, if you will, or pilots that I did, Back when I was in Fair, at Fairview in 2011, we we decided a, a, a lot of our ED visits weren't uh, ED; they weren't emergent. Okay. And so we said, what if we put a, a, a rude and crude first generation telemedicine type application that's all HIPAA protected? What if we put that in place to allow our consumers to uh, text into the ED 24 seven, not text, video call into the ED 24 seven? And, you know, I remember the doctors said, patients are not going to do this. They're going to want to come in and have junior be seen. And uh, you know, I said, well, I don't know about you, but my, my situation, when my junior was sick years and years ago, it's two o'clock in the morning. And I think the little guy is going to die because he's got a hundred next fever. He's my firstborn. I'm scared to death. I jump in my car. I drive downtown to the children's hospital. Um, and I spend $2,000 worth of somebody else's money to find out that junior is the same thing that everybody else has. And we just go home and I, I lose sleep. I'm groggy at work the next day. And we put that up. And of course the patients loved it. The yeah. patients loved it. They had a board certified emergency room doctor ready to talk to them uh, on demand at two o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon. And so I think <clears throat> that was kind of my eyes open that there's something here we have to transfer, our business model was people come to us, not we go to patients. And so uh, we transform it. And, and now more and more of the industry is doing that as well. Right, right. Yeah, I have a specialist I go to and they are excellent at texting. 
and they insist on it. They really want you to text them as opposed to email or call and they yep. do respond. So you're rewarded for using the text because you do get an answer. And if it requires a call, somebody will call you. But, um, I, I tell you, you know, I'm, that's sort of something that just developed this year. And I think it came out of the whole telehealth uh, push that COVID initiated. Um, but I'm really satisfied with that. So anyway, I don't. Well, and we, and we yeah. have metrics inside of our health. So we measure all that. Yeah. Just like a call center would measure percent of calls that drop, percent of calls that have to hold more than three minutes, all those things. We have measures and metrics on how how fast we have to respond to those text messages, how fast we have to respond to an incoming email, uh, e, e message via Yapik or something like that to, to patients, because that's part of a good customer service system. So uh, we didn't have those a decade ago. So it's, it's changed a lot here, especially as you know, with COVID. Sure. Maybe, sure. I'll, maybe I'll shift to the second friend, yes. uh, and that's, that's population health. We've touched that a little bit already. But again, uh, when I was running health systems, we were on the pay for volume mode. We're moving to the pay for value mode, putting heads in beds versus keeping patients out of the hospital and coordinating the care. Uh, I would say 2017, 2018, uh, was kind of where I saw the tipping point start to happen in the United States where more and more health systems were saying, this is a trend that's not just a fad. It's something that's not going away. We need to figure out how to play in this space and begin to participate in these accountable care models, accountable care organizations and, and new payment models, and new care delivery models. So I always like to think about population health kind of in three buckets. The first is you, get, you need to change the care. How do we deliver that care? How much variation is in there in that care between, say, heart similar heart um, failure patients or similar pneumonia patients? Are we using the same protocols? Are they evidence-based? So it's really hitting that first uh, aim of the triple aim, the quality of the care and reducing the variation to get better care. The second bucket then is around experience. I talked about the video calls for the ED. Uh, it might be the text messages that we talked about. It might be something as simple as always saying, uh, when you're in an exam room with a patient, are there any questions you might have? I have plenty of time for you today. Instead of rushing out the room and making the patients feel like they were listened to, they were cared about, uh, and we're just concerned, as concerned about you are as, as you are concerned about you. And the third element of a, a strong population health is really changing the payment models. If you do the first two things well, you're going to create some value. You're going to lower the total cost of care on a per member per year basis. We need a way of sharing in that payment. And the Medicare, the government's been a real leader in that space with the ACO models and the shared savings models. Many of the commercial players are, are paying in that space as well. So what you'll find at a provider standpoint is most health systems have kind of one foot in both worlds. They might have uh, 10 to 20 to 25% of their activities in, in the new world of pay for volume and 80 to 85% of their activities in the old world of 25% um, uh, of the pay for value, 80% uh, in the pay for volume. So I kind of call it this yellow space between two S curves of business where it gets crazy. And so when we're in the midst, I, I shared the example from a hospital president. I'll share another example from my system radiology director that came to me. I was driving him crazy too. And I said, what's wrong? He said, well, last week, the CFO came down and said, how come your large, uh, uh, your volumes for, for the, the big MRIs and CTs, the, the heavy-duty radiology exams, why are they down 12% year over year? Um, uh, have you lost some key referral sources? Or what's driving that volume decrease in, in the MRIs and CTs? Because uh, uh, it's very profitable business for us. We're, we're hitting it in the bottom line pretty hard. So that happened the previous week, that morning that the, the radiology VP came to me. He said, I also got another visit today from the head of population health. And his question was, how come your uh, MR and CT volumes year over year are only down by 12%? Uh, didn't you know that we both agreed that about 20% of those cases should never have been done in the first place? They're not medically indicated. So that's the tension between these two worlds that we're feeling, um, and most health systems are kind of in, in the middle of that. So um, the, the strategy here, of course, from a health system standpoint, is if you do this well, 
create value around that quadruple aim of cost, quality, experience, and, and uh, physician and caregiver experience, um, you're going to create some value in, in the community. You're going to make healthcare more affordable. It's going to give you a chance to play and cover more lives, to have more health plans, want to have you be part of them, to have the government want you to be a provider. To And, and, and the, at the end of the day, you get a chance to improve more lives, improve health status, and improve well-being for your community. So that's the strategic play. It's hard work. It's very counterintuitive uh, for someone that's been uh, trained like myself to uh, get a hammer and pound a nail into a board. Suddenly you're having to do some, a very different activity of you're no longer nail board pounding. You're doing something very different than that in terms of how you measure success. So, uh, and I, I probably work with 25 different large health systems nationally and their population health volume to value activities. And all of them are at varying stages of, of advancement. But it's, it's exciting. I've, I've done it myself. I've watched it work. Uh, patients do better. Healthcare becomes more affordable. And frankly, it gets doctors and nurses back more towards the top of their license doing the things that they like to do and not doing a lot of the administrative activities or, or make work activities that might happen within the health system. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So That's maybe two. Oh, that was that was two, yeah. Yep. Maybe I'll jump into the third one. And this is kind of the mergers and consolidations. I'll make this fast so we have enough time for some chat at the end as well. Sure. But you know, we've had a record numbers of mergers and consolidations over the last many years. Uh, and you've heard them all from, from Sanford Health, the uh, uh, Advocate Aurora Health, Cleveland Clinic, Providence, um, Intermountain Health. More and more big systems are getting bigger, more and more small health systems aren't able to make it on their own. Uh, the bond ratings for the large ones is bigger, are better, and they're not nearly as well for the, the smaller health systems. So the bigger getting bigger, they're able to have a more diversified portfolio. They're managing their enterprise risk much more effectively than uh, if they didn't have that. So this is something that we've seen, you know, record numbers of mergers uh, almost every year. You know, you think of a big, big entity like Baylor Scott and White down in Texas. It's a huge integrated delivery system with an HMO with I don't know, 40, hosp 40 plus hospitals, uh, lots of surgery centers, imaging centers, millions of members, there are hundreds of thousands of members in their HMOs and accountable care organizations. That's not your health system of yesterday. Uh, that's a new health system. And generally it's uh, systems like that are the largest employers in their community as well. So they matter for the local economy in addition to mattering for the, the healthcare delivery. What's happened more recently though, in the last three, four years, is the mergers have gotten not only bigger, but they've gotten different. We've got the CVS and Aetna's coming together. We've got the United Healthcare uh, purchasing Davida Medical Group. We've got Optum uh, quietly becoming the largest employer, the second largest employer of physicians in the United States. Optum now employs 50,000 physicians, mm -hmm. and they're aimed to grow this year to 60,000, gaining another 10,000 doctors. Uh, for, you know, I, I had like two or 3,000 doctors on our medical staff for, uh, you know, several hospital system. So it's like five systems worth of hospitals coming on board, if you will, into the Optum payroll. So they're getting different from uh, uh, other folks getting into the delivery of care. But we've also got the Googles and the Amazons and others that are beginning to play the disruptors, the, the private equities that are now moving into buy the physician practices and playing in Medicare Advantage, the Oak Streets, the Chen Meds. There's a different type of competitor out there that's really threatening the business model of health systems and IDMs. So what you'll find is that health systems are really stepping back from it all and saying, who, who and what do we need to be? How much of that do we need to own and operate ourselves? How much of that can we outsource or partner with others in order to be more diversified and have a bigger footprint in order to deliver against that quadruple aim, cost, quality, patient experience. When you think about all those disruptors that I just talked about, like mm -hmm. Optum or, or uh, CVS, Aetna, what's different about them from health systems? Well, they don't have a single bed. They're not looking to fill any acute care towers. They're not looking to build out the intensivist service or the transplant service. They're playing much more in the ambulatory surgery center space or in the, the clinic space. And they're really trying to take the most profitable areas of healthcare 
And I don't blame them. So I'm not like being in any sort of accusatory mode here. Uh, it's, it's business for them. They're trying to bring value to their shareholders by playing in those spaces, by providing a better experience. I don't like what you experience with your specialists. Right. And so uh, health systems, uh, this, this whole consolidation used to be hospitals merging with hospitals. It moved to hospitals acquiring physician practices. Now it's kind of moving much more broadly because the goal of many of those were to fill beds, right? Right. And now the goal is beginning to shift towards population health and consumerism of how do we create scale in a community in order to provide a better experience to bring care closer to where patients live and make it more affordable. So these trends interrelate with each other. And, and again, COVID has accelerated so much of this. Uh, everything we've talked about has been accelerated pretty dramatically by COVID. So uh, more simply put, I guess, if I think about why we did mergers and consolidations, it, 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 in the past, it was you know, really about leveraging our, our, space, our, our size to get better pricing uh, from, from vendors, better uh, labor contracts, better payer contracts from the third-party payers. And today, it's about creating scale to create a better product. How can we create a better product? And if you think about, again, I'll just use Amazon because everybody uses Amazon. Uh, think for a second why you use Amazon. Why do you pull up that app on your phone to buy something there versus why don't you jump in your car and drive to Dick's Sporting Goods or drive to Macy's or drive to lots of reasons. That's not healthcare. That's not where we've been. And right. that's what the scale and that's why some of these partnerships are really trying to aim towards something like that as well. So hopefully that gives you kind of a thumbnail sketch as to, to what's happening from a merger consolidation standpoint. I expect more coming out of COVID, more and more small systems are struggling, um, more and more physician practices. Um, they don't have balance sheets. So uh, whereas we on the provider side have big balance sheets we can tap into during times of duress, most independent private physician practices distribute all their cash at the end of the year to the, the, the partners. And so when the cash stops turning off, their incomes go down, straight down. So many of them are also looking for ways out or as I would call it, shelter from the storm. So I would expect a flurry of physician activity in 2021 and 2022 as well. Okay. So I'll finish up with the last one and sure. then we'll kind of open it up. But that's this relentless uh, focus on cost. What, what can we do to reduce the total cost of care? Uh, and it's happening everywhere you go. When I met with uh, these uh, health systems the other day, um, they're, they're basically saying, uh, yeah, we're working on consumerism, we're working on pop health, all these different things, but we're, do, we're heavily focused on what can we do to reduce the overall cost, 15 to 20%, so not just a small incremental one. So okay, here's a little dirty, dirty little secret from healthcare. Uh, if you look at all of our cases that we care for in a health system, let's say it's usually 50, 40, 60% Medicare, Medicaid, 40% uh, commercial, so HMOs and other payers. On the 60% Medicare, our average loss across the country, actual real loss across all of the United States is a minus 10%. Hmm. So for every single Medicare patient that comes through our doors, we lose 10 cents on the dollar. Wow. So we're, we're losing a lot of money on the governmental payers. Medicaid's even worse, right? Right. So how are we keeping our doors open? How are we getting that 3% operating margin I talked about earlier? On the commercial side of our business, we're making 25 to 30% margins. So they're subsidizing the governmental payers, commercial subsidizing the governmental payers. But for so many of your listeners on your podcast, they work for large commercial companies. Guess what their human resource benefits managers are saying? We're paying too much for healthcare. We need to do some things to reduce the total cost of health care. We know we're the cash cow to these health systems. So we're going to push on rates. We're going to push on site of care. We're going to squeeze health care systems as much as we can. So we see the squeeze coming from the federal government. Uh, they've been printing money for the last three, two years. Uh, we're going to have a deficit to deal with at some point in time. Healthcare will be in the middle of that bullseye circle. And we're feeling the same thing from commercial payers. So most of us at the end of the day think that you know, three years, five years from today, the payment model, whether it's an ACO model or a fee-for-service model for both commercial and, and um, Medicare and the governmental will be at about the same level. 
I'm not saying single payer health care, but I'm just saying how much healthcare gets paid at will be about the same level. Well, if we reduce everything down to kind of where Medicare is, that's that 15 to 20% reduction in expenses needed to get in there. It's not just pure labor cuts, if you will. It's not at all that. It's kind of eliminating things that shouldn't be done. It's going to these new models of care where you're rewarded for keeping patients healthy. So you're going to continue to see a big focus on all aspects of, of, of that uh, inside these health systems of what can we do to reduce that total cost of care across the health system. Um, it's kind of a, a constant drumbeat of what are we doing around care and care management and costs today, tomorrow, and into the future. Uh, it can't be just a short-term fix that morphs back into the health system down the line. It's got to be something that's more durable. So how does that show up for vendors and suppliers? We are going to be squeezing on you to say, what can we do to get better pricing? It's not because we love it as sport. It's because we have targets that we're needing to hit enterprise-wide in order to move forward. Um, I still remember when I was at Fairview, three years in a row, I, it was about a $3.5 billion company. Uh, my target enterprise-wide was generally the $150 to $170 million a year of expense savings, of revenue capture, of waste that I needed to try to squeeze out of my organization. So on one hand, it's a challenge for suppliers because you know that we're going to squeeze you. On the second hand, and maybe shifting to uh, the, the, the conversation side, it's an opportunity for you. You might have some products or some services that can help me achieve some things that are bigger than just you know doing that procedure in the cath lab or doing that, that uh, procedure in the operating room. It might help me in my readmissions rate. It might help me move from three staff in the room to two staff in the room because of the ease of use of your product. All of those things are part of the affordability story that um, those providers, excuse me, those suppliers that really dig deeper to understand what their providers are up to at a strategic level and how your organization, how your, your strategic platform intersects with your customers, you're going to be in a better spot to, to bring value above the product and not just the, the innate value that the product brings. So I'll pause there. Uh, I, I'm, I'm bullish on healthcare. There's lots of opportunities. I've outlined some of the challenges, but I'm watching health systems rise to these occasion, challenge occasions and looking at what they can do to make health care better and to partner with suppliers um, throughout the ecosystem to say, uh, we know we don't have the answers to do to go where we need to go. We need your help too. Um, so um, questions, thoughts, I'm sure I've confused you a little bit here, but hopefully no, this is- No, no, this is really, really excellent. I think you've really put some great structure to this. So I guess one question I'd have is when you look at the uh, larger- um, you know, forward-thinking healthcare systems that are out there. So does it seem to you that they're pretty adept at looking forward um, three, five years, 10 years, and understanding what the, the landscape might be at that time and starting to plan for? And I, I think I'm hearing a little bit of that. Yeah, I, I do think they are. Absolutely. Uh, and you start at the board level, not just at the management level, but at the board uh -huh. level. Uh, the boards are often constructed of Fortune 500 types that are saying, we need you to be a different health system than you are today. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's a big part of a, a, a very adept that. Um, and I would be remiss if I also didn't talk about uh, diversity, equity, and all the things that also arose during the the uh, um, um, racism, all, all those things that came up during 2020, boards are highly focused on that as well. So that's a big part of it. But yes, they are absolutely, especially the larger ones. Uh, some of the smaller health systems, I would not say the leadership team is, is adept. And, and frankly, I can go into, a, I, I won't mention the name of it, but a large health system that um, uh, out in the uh, out West Coast somewhere, uh, they're they're a, a big platform, big health system, lots and lots of sites and location, very diversified. Um, I can think of a, a dozen of their hospital operators that aren't that adept and are pretty yesterday oriented. And so it's a journey to really kind of bring your whole organization along. Uh, if you've been trained to put heads in beds, if all your doctors have been trained to just do more procedures, you have to start thinking differently about how we me will measure success. So it's, it's a bit of a journey even inside of those health systems, 
even if the senior leadership uh, has got it down. Do you think that I'm going to break up med tech or life sciences into a couple categories, but let's talk about the the gorillas in the market, you know, the Boston Scientifics, the J&Js, Medtronics, um, Abbott, so on and so forth. Are those companies aligned or do you think that they're thinking that same way or, or have they not gotten the message yet? Yeah, I've worked with, uh, I think, all of the companies you just said uh, in my consulting <laughs> practice okay. um, at, at, at various levels inside of various divisions inside of those companies uh, as part of what we've done. Um, I think the strategy people and the top of leadership is aligned around that. Um, the analogy I would use, Ted, is they're having the same issue right. uh, that the providers are. Um, I, I won't name the pharma company, but I worked with one of the largest pharma companies in the world. And the, the folks at the top got it completely. The folks in the middle, uh, uh, at the, you know, the VP level uh, kind of got it. But, you know, they really liked the uh, call and frequency uh, uh, model that they had in pharma for decades. And, you know, double down on more calls to doctors in order to sell more drugs. So we put in all this stuff to kind of move it upstream and get into the strategy and partner up with our health systems around the future. And the individual and the individual I was working with, he got it 100%. And he had the, the ear of the chairman and the CEO to say, yes, this is the path we're going. He got transferred to another division inside of that big pharma company. Someone else came on board and, and disassembled everything that had been put together to go back to yesterday's model. I see the same thing happening in health systems. So I'm not just picking on the, the supplier side. I see that same thing happening in health systems. So, so much of it then is about not just what's the strategy, but what's the culture inside the organization that supports the strategy? And is it durable? Is it dependent upon a single individual to sustain that culture? And so uh, that, that's part of what's happening on both the provider and the supplier at the, almost simultaneously. Right. And where does that leave small to medium sized med tech companies? And when I say small to medium size, I'm talking from a startup with almost zero dollars. And I'm going to say medium is going to be in the neighborhood of um, it could be 100, 150 million dollars. Yeah, I, I think the smaller ones definitely have a harder time playing on something that's what I'll call above the features and benefits level of, of a particular product. I've met mm -hmm. a supply capital equipment. Uh, and, and please know, guys, I am not an expert in your space. So I'm only giving you my, my observations and how I've seen this both in my provider career and my career working with, with vendors. The medium-sized ones, I think they really do have a chance to invest in the resources to gain a bigger picture of what the future looks like, what are the pressure points that these health systems might have, how can we bring value to them, and, and frankly, I'll, I'll use a pharmacy example. I met with someone this morning on this before our call today. Okay. Uh, and, and, I, and I said, your job is to really uh, build that relationship with that director of pharmacy around your technology. Think about how your, your work with that DOP, the system VP of pharmacy, can help the broader health system achieve elements of strategic plan and help that chief pharmacist become a star inside of that health system not just a contributor, but a star. And you think about, uh, I think of lab and pharmacy. I do work at both the laboratory and pharmacy space in my consulting. Uh, they've been in the limelight this past 12 months, past 14 months, more than at any time in my life. And I go to, uh, and again, I'm a pharmacist, so I can say that, but I, I go to my pals that are our chief operating officers, CEOs at these health systems. And one of them said to me last fall, I've never spent more time with lab and pharmacy. I didn't know hardly anything about it. I've learned so much. So uh, my message back to them is, you've had a seat at the table, keep it. Don't give it up, kind of stay with them at the table and keep better understanding where the strategy of the company is going and partner with these medium-sized or small med tech companies if they've got a unique solution that can help accelerate your organization's speed to results. Speed to results, not just around percentage occlusion fixed in the cath lab, but one of those bigger strategic levels that I talked about earlier. So it requires some fact finding and, and learning about how your product or service in the med tech world interfaces with the broader ecosystem 
And there are things that you can do through analytics, through um, care improvement, through care variation, through appropriateness, things you can do to reduce staffing. That's a number one driver that uh, will make that pharmacy leader, that OR leader, or that nursing station leader look like a star if we can staff with one less nurse per shift or one less pharmacist per shift. Uh, all of those things are are great for us these days. So if you're a startup, how are we doing for time? I think we're near an hour here. We've got Yeah, a we bit. are. I mean, how but do you have a couple more minutes? Oh, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um so for a uh, startup company, for example, that is um, getting ready to, they've sort of defined a product, they're getting ready to go into clinical trials, they should be also looking at other things. They might want to be getting other metrics out of those clinical trials, which are some of the things you just mentioned, like does it reduce, you know, maybe cost reduction, um, hour, the, the hours reduction in terms of the kind of care that's re- required or days in the hospital or and or other things as opposed to just maybe you know, better infection control or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, sure. Yeah, my, and again, I, I would not hold myself out to be an expert, so that's my little asterisk on this. But so many startups uh, enter their clinical trials with the endpoint of success from a clinical outcome that, that they're trying to achieve. Right. And some of the larger companies I work with now, they talk about it very specifically. They bake into the clinical trial health and economics outcomes research to really drive What's the health and what's the economic outcome and the clinical outcome? How do they both come together? If this were to be successful, it can help help drive what your pricing might want to be. It can help drive uh, whether you're having an impact on some of these other things that if you don't measure them during the clinical trials, you don't have a chance to measure. And so think about the, the economic side of this thing, the patient experience side of this thing, the caregiver experience side of the equation so that your trial is a more balanced clinical trial as opposed to just the infection prevention or the percent occlusion or whatever the the direct clinical outcome you might have. Right. And then you have the information with which to put together a really relevant package that that the value analysis committee could evaluate and and look at and discuss. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then, then, you know, you, you finish your trial, you go to market, you get a couple of early adopters, you develop some additional data, um, get some white papers that are written by them, not written by you. So right. it's got even more credibility uh, around it. Um, and, uh, and you know, what I found when I used to have a real job, I don't really have a real job today, I'm, I'm fortunate. But when I was running health systems, it's a small world. Uh, we talk amongst each other around the country. So if someone came to me and said, we did some amazing things at Long Beach Memorial down in, in, in Southern California. Uh, we, 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 you know, did better than sliced bread. Um, I could call my friend at Long Beach uh, who runs that system and ask her, uh, can you put my people in touch with the people in this department to find out whether this is real or whether this is vendor created? Because uh, sometimes we get these things from suppliers and every path just leads to more of buying that supplier's product. Um, and there's a, a bit of hyperbole built into the uh, into the uh, uh, analysis. So uh, this individual I was speaking with this morning, uh, you guys sometimes have a habit of over-promising and under-delivering. Right. If you can be a, an organization that under-promises and over-delivers, you'll be so much better off in terms of reputational impact in the, in the business. Okay. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Um I think that we have really covered a ton of ground and I really appreciate we covered the forces, we covered the triple aim, which is awesome. And um, uh, I guess one last thing I, I read, um, I started reading this year, uh, the Becker daily newsletter. Um, anything else that you, that you recommend uh, that maybe people should be skimming or reading to stay on top of the provider side of the world? Yeah, Becker's is pretty good. Uh, and I'm actually amazed. You know, Becker's didn't exist a decade ago. Huh. And Scott Becker, I got a chance to meet him in my consulting practice uh, uh, early on. Someone introduced me to him, and he's done an amazing, you know, he kind of took the place of what hospitals and modern healthcare used to do, and he puts it together in a much more consumable format for you as, as readers. So kudos to him. 
Modern healthcare is up their game. They're not bad for kind of keeping in touch with what's happening in the health system. Um, for those of you that are members of the advisory board, uh, I think they're fantastic, uh, great group. Uh, there's another one out there called the Dale, Daily News, Dale, D-A-I-L, E-News, Daily News. Okay. Uh, it's by the Association of Healthcare Contracting or something like that. Uh, um, uh, another group called the, uh, what's it called? I wrote this down, the ANAD, Association of National Account Executives. They all put out some good stuff on a regular basis that kind of get at this interface between big health systems and uh, what's happening in the supplier community. Um, but, but frankly, I do all that reading. Most of my great knowledge comes from jumping on our calls with people around the country that are sitting in chairs uh, trying to lead African of our health or Presbyterian in New Mexico or wherever it may be. Right. No, but that's really helpful. And for the listeners, I will uh, put links to these um, uh, publications or e-sites or whatever websites right. that, that Mark just listed. I'll put them in the show notes. Well, Mark, I really appreciate your time today and going a few minutes over. Um, this is this has been terrific. And it's this podcast's first real um, exploration of um, the mindset of the provider side and also somebody that yourself that sort of bridges the the link between the provider and the vendor side, supplier side. So I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Appreciate being part of this today as well. Thanks, Ted. Oh, great. Awesome. All right. You take care and uh, have a great week. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. What is your reaction to what we learned from Mark? Is your organization already oriented to work within these forces? Does it have the culture to do so? Just to summarize, the four forces are consumerism, population health, the third one is mergers, consolidations, new competitors, and disruptors. The fourth is the relentless focus to reduce total cost of care and to deliver affordability. So if you are in sales, you may feel like you can't influence a company to align with these forces. However, you can change your approach to your sales pitch to send the message that you are aware of them and trying to align with your customers. Whether you are in the field or in management, feel free to share this podcast with other leaders in your organization. Seeds that are planted and fertilized will grow. Lots to think about. Don't forget about the links in the show notes. Some of the newsletters are great ways to keep your finger on the pulse of the healthcare market in the United States. Thanks again for being with us today and with me. If you like this podcast, please rate it, recommend it to a friend, or subscribe. Now, go win your week.